It's a real uh, practical passage, that, in Proverbs chapter 3, 1 through 12. If you look at um, the, the commands that are linked to promises there through all the verses, it's, uh, it's really quite interesting how many of those we really believe and live like we believe them. Uh, the very beginning there, don't forget my teaching, let your heart keep my commandments. And then the length of days and years of, for the length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. You will live longer, you have a peaceful life. If you remember God's teaching and keep his commandments. Be kind and truthful and you will have a good reputation both with man and God. Things will go well for you there. Trust in the Lord God with all your heart. Uh, and acknowledge him and he'll make the, the path of your life straight. Uh, don't, be, don't think yourself wise according to your own wisdom, but listen to God and that will be good for you health-wise even. It says there, be good for your health, even physically. Uh, honour the Lord, honour God with what you have as far as financially and your possessions and he's going to keep on blessing you. And then a little bit there in verse 11 and 12 about the fact when God... Uh, disciplines us, it's because he loves us and wants what's best for us. So real practical stuff there that perhaps sometimes we just read over and don't really don't really take it seriously. And, and by that I mean do you really believe that if you stick to God's teaching that you'll live a longer life and it will be more peaceful? Because if you really believe that, these are, these are, all of those kind of things in that passage are things that we should be concentrating on and taking seriously in our lives. Look at verse 5 again. That's what we're going to concentrate on this morning. Trust in the Lord and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Trust in the Lord and he will, he will make your life one of clear direction. He will make your life one where the paths are smooth, where, where the paths are easier, where the paths are better, where the paths are clear. Trust in him, and that's what he'll do for you. Now, trust, I think, has become one of those uh, throwaway Bible words that we use and don't really think about a whole lot. Like what it actually means, words like holy, um, you know, words like uh, righteous and gracious, we see these words in prayers all the time. I know I've said to you before, I remember when I was just Jordan's age and I would say a prayer at East Bride, I, I remember starting every single prayer, most gracious and heavenly Father. Every, every time I got up, you knew I was going to say that at the beginning of my prayer. And it was years after that, I thought, I'm not even really thinking about what that means. The fact that I have a Father who is God in heaven, above all, and gracious to me, and all that that meant. And so I stopped saying it. Out of habit, at least, now when I say it, at least I think about it. And I think trust has, become, trust has become one of those overused words that actually means more than the consideration that we give it, usually. So I'm going to ask, who trusts God? Good. Now, when I say that, let me not offend anybody. When I say that trust has perhaps become an overused word that doesn't mean so much, perhaps we just need to ask someone who's been betrayed or let down, uh, and perhaps they will then know the real meaning of trust uh, because of maybe some situation in their own life. But I'm glad to see such a show of hands about who trusts God. Now, I'm going to ask you again, who really trusts God? Really trusts Him? <coughs> you see, that's easy for us to put our hands up for that, I think, because we've never been betrayed by God. 
If I, if I ask you about the real meaning of trust, and you've been betrayed by someone you love, that's going to have a deep, deep meaning to you. But when we ask who really trusts God, we can say that. Everybody put their hand up pretty quick. And it's, that, that's not always the case with those kind of questions. We've done that before. Who's all going to heaven? And the hands are kind of, well, you know, I'm not too sure. But the whole trust God thing there, that was pretty easy. The hands went up really quick. And so I have to say well done to you for that. But then I'm going to ask you the question, well, how do you know? How do you know you really trust God? How can you tell? How does it show in your life that you really trust God? Because you see, I know about Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. I know he trusts God. Because he was asked to offer his only son. And he went up there willing to do that. And of course God prevented it. So I know that he trusts God. We all know that story. And I know about David. We were doing uh, the Bible classes on Tuesday night. All of the, the younger classes were doing the story of David. I was doing it with Scott. It was great just reading over it again with Scott as a co-teacher there. Just bringing out some of the details about that great story. And how David really trusted God. One thing I'd never noticed before. I knew it happened, but I'd never really thought about it. Was here's David standing in front of Goliath. And Goliath is cursing at him. And David's just shouting back at him, I'm going to cut your head off. This wee boy, that's what he said. I'm going to separate your head from your body, that's what he said. And Goliath goes for him. And David actually runs towards him. There was no tactics about hiding a tree and jump out and ambush him. Actually runs towards him. He doesn't even have the stone out of his pocket. There's trust in God. I know David trusts God. I know even about Ananias, who was uh, told by God to go and see Saul after Saul had been travelling on the road to Damascus and, he, and, and they'd encountered Jesus and he was in, waiting in Damascus blind for three days but Ananias didn't know that all Ananias knew was Saul's on his way to, to, to Damascus to arrest and murder Christians men, women and children and he gets this message go and see him I don't want to I don't blame him I wouldn't want to and God says well go anyway because I've chosen him and he goes so I know Ananias trusts God and there's countless other stories in the scripture, but what about us? How is our trust known? How is our trust shown? What could be written or said about how we trust God? Because we've all said that we really trust Him. What if we make the question of trust more specific? Do you trust God to love you? Specifically, do you trust that God loves you? No matter what, in spite of everything we do, in spite of who we are, do you trust that God loves you? Because in Romans chapter 5 verse 8 we read that God demonstrated his love for us while we were yet sinners and that Christ died for us. So God proves that. He demonstrates it. We read in 1 John 4.16 that God is love. But he also says in Matthew 10.33, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. He also says in Matthew chapter 7 verse 23 that there are going to be those who approach this, the throne of heaven expecting to get in and Jesus is going to say, depart from me because I, I never knew you. I don't know who you are. He also says in Proverbs chapter 8 verse 17, I love those who love me. And we know God loves all of mankind and we can trust that. But he also says these and perhaps we don't think about those things as much. It's great to think, yes, God loves us unconditionally. God loves mankind. And perhaps we just wash over and don't like to think about some of those, some of those statements to have maybe a bit more consequence for how we live or who we are. Do we trust that those statements are also true? 
that there will be some who don't get to heaven who expect to that there will be some that although God, God loves them he doesn't recognise them perhaps we don't take those quite as seriously perhaps we're just trying to avoid thinking about them ok well do you trust God to forgive you do you trust him to do that that's a big thing Psalm chapter 86, Psalm verse 5 says, God is good and ready to forgive. First John chapter 1 verse 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive those sins. Forgive us. So we do, do we trust that God will forgive us? And I, I think the hands would shoot straight up again. But He also says that if you don't forgive, then you won't be forgiven. Do we trust Him on that as well? Maybe if we really believed that, the same as we trusted that he would forgive us, perhaps it would be something we would work on a little more. Okay, well do you trust God to take you home? Trust God to come back, Christ to come back and take us home to be with him for eternity. Because in Matthew chapter 25 verse 21 through 23 we read a couple of times that statement where Jesus says to us, hopefully us, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. What does he say after that? Enter into the joy of your master. Come on in. Come on home. Trust him for that. He says in uh, John chapter 14 verse 3, he said to his disciples, uh, verses 1 through 3, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it wasn't the case, I wouldn't have told you that. In verse 3 he says, but I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back and receive you to myself so that you can be where I am. I'm going to come back and get you. I'm going to come back and take you home. Do we trust him for that? Because he also says in John 3 verse 5 that unless a man's born again that he can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Can't come home. He also says in John chapter 8 verse 21 where he was talking to the, the Jews he says, look, you're going to die in your sins and you can't come where I'm going. You can't come home. And in Romans chapter 8 verse 7 and 8 it says that those who are in the flesh, those who, those who think fleshly, those who act worldly, are hostile towards God and cannot be pleasing to God. Do we also trust these statements? Does he really mean it? That there are some who can't come home? That there are some who don't even have the privilege of being able to call that home and have no right to be there? And the only right we have is because of Christ. Does he really mean that? I think if we think of things like that, we would rather move on. We would rather not concentrate on those kind of statements. We would rather go back to the, well, I trust God to love us and I trust God to forgive us promises. Because they're, they're just more pleasant to be in the mind. As we consider this, uh, these areas of trust, there's a pattern there, I think, with, with how we think about it. There's a pattern that, that's quite disturbing, there's a pattern that's quite dangerous, a pattern that's quite revealing about how we treat this concept of trust, and specifically trust in God. And what it says to me is that it points an accusing finger at the kind of trust that we have often, sometimes. Because it implies to me that our trust is not quite as complete as, we, as it really should be, <coughs> Excuse me, and not really quite as complete as we would even like to think it is. Yeah, it's easy to say, I really trust God. How does it show? It's easy to say, I trust God to love me, trust God to forgive me, trust God to take me home. It doesn't cost me anything. In 1995, Randy Reed, 
A 34-year-old construction worker from Chicago was welding on top of a nearly completed water tower just outside the city. According to the woman that wrote about this, Melissa Ramsdell, Reed unhooked his safety gear to reach for some pipes when a metal cage slipped and bumped the scaffolding that he was standing on. The scaffolding tipped and Reed lost his balance. He fell 110 feet, landed face down in a pile of dirt, just missing the rocks and all the construction rubble that was lying there. A fellow worker called 911 and when paramedics arrived, they found Reed conscious, moving and complaining of a sore back. The later revealed that he came away from the accident with just a bruised lung. But as they carried him on this backboard to the ambulance, do you know what the one thing was that he said? Can you guess? Don't drop me. That's what he said to them. Now, I don't know if he was just exercising his sense of humour, maybe he still had it, or maybe he was genuinely concerned after falling 110 feet that these two mad paramedics would drop him three feet. You know, we are kind of like that construction worker at times where we find it easy to trust God in the big things, to save us from hell, to provide an eternity for us, to forgive us of our sins, all of these big things that we live for, all of these big things that we turn to him for, and we can trust him with those. And yet we don't trust him with the small things. We don't trust him with the three feet drops. We don't even come to him with them. So, do you trust him with the small or the relatively small, because some of these were big things, the relatively smaller things of daily life? Because we've established that we trust him with the big things. We've established, him, we've established that we trust him when we're 110 feet up and we really need him. What when we're down closer to the ground? Do you trust God when he says, go to Matthew chapter 5 verse 8, that you'll be able to quote it. Do you trust God when he says, keep yourself pure? Jesus' sermon, sermon in the middle of the Beatitudes in verse 8 of chapter 5. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? Because they shall see God. Do you trust him when he says that? Now I bet you if I said, I guarantee if I said, who all wants to see God, the hands would shoot up just as quick. Pure in heart, do. Blessed are the pure in heart. God says, Jesus says, keep yourself pure. It's going to be good for you. You're going to get to see me. That's the way, that's the way I want it to be. That's the way it should be between us. Now, we all know the difference between purity and defilement. We all know when something is pure and clean and when something's dirty and ruined. Don't be generalities. You know that, don't you? We might not use the word purity a lot, but if you've got your nice new jacket that you got for Christmas and you go out and somebody's rubbing it in a big puddle, that's not good, is it? You don't like for that to happen. We know the difference between purity and defilement. And we can't hide hide from that. We can't pretend that we don't understand what it means. Let's look at some passages here. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 and 19. I'm going to push on with these and read some of these quite quickly. So if I start reading before you get to them, excuse me me and bear with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 and 19. Flee immorality. Every other sin that man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Look at verse 9 of the same chapter. 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, and he goes on in the end of verse 10, shall inherit the kingdom of God. God says, be pure. One of the ways that we've just saw there is keep yourself pure sexually. How do I know, how do you know that we trust God? Because we will trust that what he says there is right, and we will do that. We will keep ourselves pure sexually when the rest of the world are saying, sleep around, try before you die, don't take it seriously. Marriage is disposable, and all the rest of it. And we won't buy into that. Because God says, that's not my way. Keep yourself pure. And by it, we'll know that we trust him because we do what he says. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 makes it very clear. Let marriage be held in honour among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Now it doesn't get any more straightforward than that. Now do you trust him? Do you really trust God? Because God says that this is what's going to happen to those who don't keep themselves sexually pure. So if you trust them, we're not going to do that. And we're not going to say that that's okay. And we're not going to say that that's right and that that's acceptable. First, go, go to Ephesians 5.18. But if you remember what he said in 1 Corinthians 6.19 there about our body being a temple, we can also go down the lines of, of drugs and, and, and I'm including alcohol and tobacco in that statement because if we trust God we'll keep ourselves pure from those things as well because those things do us damage those things cause problems he tells us that our body is a temple and to treat it as such as the dwelling place of God in 1 Corinthians 6.19 look at Ephesians 5.18 and do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation but be filled with the spirit now I'm not going to go into all of this again we did the study well, we did, I did a, a lesson fairly recently on the study that we did on alcohol and I've said before and I'll say it again anybody who wants a copy of the notes and the details of the study you're welcome to them but suffice to say as we looked into it the Greek word that he uses there for drunk means do not even begin to be softened with wine that's what it means there is a word that says do not be softened with wine this one Methuskos means do not even begin to be softened with wine don't allow those kind of things into your body Paul tells Timothy to take some alcohol for medicinal purposes because he was having stomach problems. But for recreational, for pleasure, don't do that. Why? We we, we know it affects self-control and uh, reactions and all the rest of it. And we know that God teaches us self-control. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 6, he talks about that being one of the Christian graces that we are to add to our lives. Add self-control. How can we do that if we're filling ourselves with the very things that take that away from us? Tobacco and other addictions is just a symptom of an area in our lives that we do not control because they have control of us. Thus, they're called addictions. But if we trust God, we won't involve ourselves in those things. Perhaps we'll become involved in them before we were Christians and perhaps it's difficult for us to give up. And that will be the case. There will be difficulty there. But if we trust God, we'll make that effort. If we trust God, we'll make that commitment. Because we believe, we'll believe him when he says, these things are bad for you. These are not the kind of things that my people are involved in. Look at Colossians chapter 3. First two verses of that chapter. For another way in which we need to keep ourselves pure. 
If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Look at Mark chapter 7 verse 21. Just keep those thoughts in mind. Mark 7 verse 21. From, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, and so on, in verse 23, the things that proceed from within and defile the man. Do you know another way that we should keep ourselves pure? The thoughts. The things that we allow to come into our minds. The things that we allow to enter our heads. Do we trust God in that? Because he says that when we allow those things into our mind and they start coming out, it's because they've already defiled us. They've ruined something there. Do we believe them? Do we trust them? Because if we do, we'll know it. Because we won't let our children play video games that even the world say are only suitable for 18-year-olds. The world says that only an 18-year-old should play this game. Why would a Christian let a 12-year-old play it? doesn't even make sense. And that's just an example. The same with movies. The same with music. The same with TV programs. We, we rented a film to watch last night. It said on the back, one use of strong language. And okay, we can stand back and say it and it'll be over. I had to switch it off. It's constant. It's obviously a mistake. We'll go back and see them. But we have, to, we have to watch what we allow going into it. Listen, God says it defiles you. It wastes you. It's like taking Gemma Louise's jacket and rubbing it in that puddle. It's not good. It's not what should be done. It shouldn't be that way. Brethren, just look around and look and see what the defilement of our generation, our world, has caused. Look at what happens when people don't keep themselves sexually pure. Look at the problems. Look at the problems with alcohol and cigarettes and drugs and all that. I had to laugh at this uh, guy that was fired from the government drugs drugs investigation agency. I'm not sure what they were called. He was fired. He set up his own one. He was fired because he said cocaine is less dangerous than alcohol and tobacco. And so they fired him. I agree with that. I would just say it a different way. I would say alcohol and tobacco are more dangerous than cocaine. It's the way you think about it. He's probably saying, well, let's legalise cocaine because it's less dangerous than alcohol and tobacco. I'd say, well, let's ban alcohol and tobacco because it's more dangerous than cocaine. It just depends on the way you think about it. You know, they are dangerous. Even he's saying it. Even people in the world are saying it. Psalm Psalm chapter 73, verse 1. Look there. 73rd Psalm. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Brethren, do you trust God? Because God says here in this psalm, I'm going to be good to you if you're pure in heart. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Why is it so important to God that we are pure? Listen, if you can't see it, I'll tell you, it's because it's killing us impurity. It's killing us. So do we trust him? Because purity means we receive the goodness of God. Do you trust God when he says choose your friends wisely? 
Another verse you can probably uh, quote, even if you don't know where it is, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be deceived. Don't kid yourself on, Paul says. Bad company corrupts good morals. Go up over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Paul says to the church this, with, this, with this second letter that we have, at least we have, do not be bound or do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light and darkness? Does that mean we've not to be with anybody that's not a Christian? Of course not. This idea of unequally yoked, you know, you, this, the farmer's ploughing his land, he's not a big combine harvester like we do now, but he's got two oxen. And he puts the yoke over them so that they go in a straight line, so that they work together. Now the farmer is not going to put an oxen on one side and a donkey on the other side. He's not going to go in a straight line, because one's going to be too dominant. One's going to pull the other in a direction that none of them should be going. So Paul's saying, don't put yourself in a relationship where those who are worldly, those who are against God, have a... Uh, an unhealthy influence on you and pull you in a direction that you shouldn't be going. We know that he teaches us elsewhere. You be the influence. Be unequally yoked with them. If you're the influence, if you're pulling them to Christ, great. But not where they're the dominant one. Not where they have the influence on you and they pull you down. Listen, he's just saying, don't get involved in those relationships. Remove yourself from them. They'll kill you. They'll destroy you. Look at the dangers of these relationships in Joshua chapter 23, verse 11 through 13. We'll find an example of this. 23rd chapter of Joshua. Beginning verse 11. So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. For if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you, and intermarry with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out from before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap to you, and a whip on your side, side and, a thorn, and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good land which the Lord God has given you. It's going to destroy you. It's going to separate you from God. It's going to take away everything good that he had planned for you. Look at uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, 16, and eight, 16 through 18. 2 Peter chapter 3, 16 through 18. Brethren, these are things that God is telling us, look, don't do this because this is what's going to happen. And if we say we trust him, why would we still do them? 2 Peter chapter 3 verse uh, 16 As also in all his letters speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction you therefore beloved knowing this beforehand be on your guard lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men you fall away from your own steadfastness. Don't get involved with people who are going to take you away from the path that you should be on. Lead you in a direction that you shouldn't be on. Take you away from God. Back to Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. 
We've already read where in verse 14 Paul says to them, don't be unequally yoked with these people. In verse 17 he's even more direct. He says, therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. Someone has that kind of influence on you, someone has that kind of relationship where they're the one taking you away from God, get away. Come out from them. Don't be a part of it. Don't touch them. Not only is it going to pull you away from God, but if you end that, which is dangerous to you and your relationship with God, he says at the end of verse 17, and I will welcome you. Why is it so important to God that we choose our friends wisely? Because it is separating us. It's destroying our relationship with God. It's taking us away from Him. Do we trust Him? Do we really trust Him? Then it will show in the company that we keep. And He will welcome us if it's right. Do you trust Him when He says, control your tongue? Do you trust Him that it's a big deal? Look at you, how I have to need me to tell you. Go to James chapter 3. James chapter 3, we're only going to read verse 2 and verse 10 right now of this this passage in in chapter 3. James 3 verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone though does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Look at verse 10. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Do you trust them? then why is it still a problem? Is language, is the kind of language that we use still a problem for us? Go to the 10th Psalm. Psalm 10, put the first part of verse 3 just to see what we're talking about here. Talking about the wicked man. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. But look what else it says about him in verse 7. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Or listen with me. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do you trust God? Because it will show your language. Because he tells us, don't talk like that. Don't allow those things to come out of your mouth. Control your tongue. Do you trust him in that? It's not just language, brethren. You know that? Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. But now you also put them all aside. Put rid of these things from your life. Anger, wrath, malice slander and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. That shouldn't be you anymore. Do you trust them in that? Do you trust them that we shouldn't look like that? That we shouldn't sound like that? It's not just lies. Look at Romans chapter 1 verse 28 and 29. It's not just lies and foul language. Romans 1 28 and 29. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips. And you can go on with the rest of the, the, rest of the list. I always thought when I was younger that gossips one was a strange one to be in there. God takes it seriously. 
That is not to be the nature of God's people. That is not to be the way we talk. Got a problem, talk to the person. Don't be telling other people about it. Don't be going behind their back and mouthing off about them. That's not the way, that's not the way God's people behave. There's a problem there. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 20. For I am afraid that perhaps when I come I may find you to be not what I wish. And may be found by you to be not what you wish. That perhaps there may be strife, jealousy, angry, te- angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. And he goes on and talks a little bit more about that in that passage and what it means. These things are destroying us. Maybe us personally, hopefully not, but certainly if we're involved, yes they are. Even if we can't see it right now. These things are destroying everything. To allow our speech to be like that and include any of these things. Go back to James chapter 3 and look at verse 6 this time. James chapter 3 verse 6. The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Pretty straightforward. Pretty serious stuff about the tongue. Why is it so important to God? Because the tongue causes, if it is not controlled, causes such devastation. In families, in churches, in nations, in the world. That's why it's important to them. Do you trust them? Do you trust them in that? Because if we control the tongue, like he said in verse 2 of James chapter 3, we show real strength. That is a position of real strength as God's people. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 12 and ask yourselves, do you trust him when he says be careful? Another verse that some of you will be able to quote here. First Corinthians, First Corinthians 10 verse 12 says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands, take heed, be careful, lest he fall. You think you're doing well? You think you're strong? You think you've got it all together? Watch out. Pride comes before a fall. Something's going to happen. You're getting careless. You're getting arrogant. You're getting cocky. Be careful. Why do you say that? Look at Second Corinthians chapter 2 verse 11. He says that because he knows, he knows Satan. And he knows Satan's powerful, but he also knows that Satan is crafty and subtle. Verse 11 talks about, In order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. That's what Satan does. He schemes. He plans. He worms his way in. You know, Derek, Satan is not going to come to you and tempt you to be a murderer. He's not going to come to you, Alan, and say, right, I'm going to get Alan, I'm going to get Alan to be a terrorist. That's, what we'll, that's, that's the sin I'll use to ensnare Alan. It's not like that. It's the small things. He gets his way in, and he lets them grow, which we'll look at in a minute. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, talking about the full armour of God, also talks about putting on that full armour of God so that, we can de- so that we can defend against, again, he uses that word, the schemes, your version might use the wiles, of the devil. He's powerful, but he's also crafty. So God says, be careful. Do you trust him in that? Because if we are, if we do, we'll be careful. Look at James, back at James chapter 1. 
James chapter 1 verse 14 and 15 talks about the progressiveness of sin talks about how it builds up talks about how it starts off small maybe just as a wee temptation but look at what it leads to in verse 14 each one is tempted sound like a big deal yeah when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust so we want something and we're tempted and so we go and do it then when lust is conceived it gives birth to sin ok a bit more serious now we sin then when sin is accomplished it brings forth death and it just keeps getting worse all from a wee thing that we thought was harmless at the time Satan's powerful but he's also crafty he's also very subtle he's going to build it up in our lives look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 22 if you want a piece of advice here about being careful listen to what God says to the Thessalonians through Paul 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 22 he simply says to them abstain from every form of evil some translations might say abstain from the very appearance of evil then God says to us be careful he says if there is a line that you can cross where on this side you're okay and on this side you're not don't try and get your toes close to the edge of the line as you can get away from it get away over on that other side of the room if it even looks like it might be wrong stay away don't flirt with it don't, don't think that you can handle it don't think that you can get dangerous and tough just get away if it even looks wrong cut it out get it out of your life Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 15. Paul says to the Ephesians there, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Why is it so important to them that we're careful? We're careful with our lives. We're careful with what we do. We're careful about staying away from those things which even look wrong. Why is it so important? Because it is ensnaring us. As it says there in James, in James chapter 1, it's teasing us in. It's capturing us. Do we trust him in that? Because carefulness will mean intimacy with God, a closeness with God, because we value that relationship with, with him, and we are careful with it, and we don't want anything that might, even might damage that, so we just don't even entertain it. This is trust that is real and visible and we have to say it demanding this isn't putting your hand up saying I believe God will love me this isn't putting your hand up saying I believe God will forgive me or I believe God's coming back to take me home this is putting your hand up and saying I trust God with these things and it's going to show in my life because, it's, because they're not going to be part of my life this is what I'm going to be involved in this is what I'm going to stay away from and it will it will show everybody will be able to tell nobody says it's easy certainly not as easy as the perhaps thoughtless taken for granted idea of trust of the bigger things the 110 foot things but this is what trust costs a television program before the 1988 Winter Olympics featured blind skiers not just blind skiers blind slalom skiers and they were being, tra- being trained for the slalom skiing have you ever seen the slalom skiing? they come down that hill at some speed has anyone any ever been skiing? it's pretty scary anyway if you let yourself go and go down that hill, I tell you, I, I promise you, it's pretty scary. You're going down fast, not as fast as these guys, but you're hurtling down there at some speed. And I can see where I'm going. I can see where I'm going and it's scary. It's intimidating. It takes a little bit of courage. Anyway, these blind skiers were paired with a sighted skier, and the sighted skier would teach them how to turn left and how to turn right, and they would do that on the flats. And once they were ready for that, 
up to the top of the hill and down through the slalom course. And the sighted skier would come down the hill at the same time. And I promise you, this is what happened. They would shout, left, right, and they would turn. And they'd done well. They, they got through the course and they got to the end of the line. It was either a picture of complete trust or it was a picture, it was a catastrophe. One way or the other it happened. But I'll tell you what, if those blind skiers were putting their trust in those sighted skiers in that situation, as a sighted person who can't ski but who has done it, that took some courage. And I'll tell you, brother, that's what it takes. If you want to say that you really trust God, you will know that you do because you will find yourself in a situation where it takes courage to trust Him. That is what trust demands. It's trusting God even when your instincts and desires and thoughts and maybe even your friends are telling you otherwise. I'm a blind skier. I'm saying, this isn't for me. I'm going to try a different sport. And all my instincts are saying when I'm getting faster and faster, just fall and you'll stop. You know, and they're shouting, turn right, turn left, carry on. And when the world and everything else you think and everything else you even want, because if desires are not always pure, is screaming, do this, do that, go with the crowd, go with them, get involved in this activity. And God says no. Trusting him has been able to say no. And not go. And not do. Think of it like flying an aeroplane. Inside every plane are instruments that are critical to flying that aircraft. Those instruments will give a true reading of how the aircraft's flying, even if the pilot's mind tells them differently, and that happens. On a clear sunny day, a pilot won't need most of those instruments. But at night, or in poor visibility, those instruments become vital to his survival. And it is a fact that many planes have crashed because pilots have become disoriented and failed to trust what their instruments are telling them. Let me tell you about an example of that. Jeff Patton, Colonel Jeff Patton, flew as an F-15 fighter pilot in Desert Storm. And on the first night of the war, very first night of Desert Storm, his mission was to escort a large formation of fighters in bombing a chemical weapons plant in northern Iraq. That date for the start of Desert Storm had been chosen because there was an absence of moonlight and there was high clouds and that helped uh, the, the attacking Allied fighters from being detected by the enemy. Anyway, flying in total darkness, the pilots became completely dependent upon the instruments inside the aircraft. Shortly after crossing into Iraq, Colonel Patton's jet was locked on to by an Iraqi surface-to-air missile radar. He violently manoeuvred his aircraft to break the radar's lock on him. His manoeuvre successfully broke the lock, but it created a new problem. Those radical movements in the dark threw off the balance in his inner ear. If you've ever had that happen to you, you'll know what that's like, and the dizziness and the, the, the coordination just goes. So that's what had happened, and he became disoriented. His mind, he genuinely believed, was telling him that the plane was in a climbing right turn. I'm sure exactly what that would mean, but the, the basis is he thought he was climbing. His mind told him that. But when he checked his instruments, they indicated that he was in a 60 degree dive towards the ground. He was, he was sure that he was in a climb instead of a dive, and his mind was screaming at him to lower the nose of his F-15 to halt the climb. 
while his mind commanded him to correct the plane in one direction, his instruments instructed him to do just the opposite. Because he was flying in total darkness, he had to decide quickly whether to trust his mind or the instruments, and his life depended on the choice. Even though it took everything within him to overcome what his mind was telling him, he decided to trust his instruments. He rolled his wings level, pulled his F-15 upwards, which drew seven times the force of gravity, pulling the aircraft out of its dive, and it only took a few moments to realize that he had made the right decision. If he had lowered the nose of his jet like his mind had been telling him, he would have crashed the plane straight into the ground, and trusting his instruments saved his life. God's word and God's ways are always right. Always. Even when the instruments inside us and the people around us and the logic of the world and everything else, culture, whatever it might be, even when they are all telling us, this is okay, do what you want, go this way, do this, God's way says, this is the way that is right and it is always right. There are so many other examples of daily trusting against all that the world would tell us. Matthew chapter 6, 19-34 Seek God first and he'll provide everything else. Make him the most important thing and he'll provide everything else to you. That's not what the world will say. God says that is. Do you trust him? Philippians chapter 4, 6-8 Pray. You know what? You'll have a peace that you don't even understand. Do you trust him in that? Because you'll only tell because you'll pray more. Luke chapter 6 verse 38 says, Give and you'll be given even more than you gave. Press down hundredfold. Do you believe that? Because if you trust him in that, you'll give more. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 15, uh, Paul says to Timothy, their study to show yourself approved. What? Handling accurately the word of God is what he says at the end of that verse. Handle the word of God accurately, guess what happens? You're approved of God. Do you trust him in that? Because if we trust him in that, we'll stop trying to change his word. Like the religious world does. Well, this is what I teach, this is what I think, this is what I believe. Let's just look at what God says and handle it accurately and you'll, get, you'll meet with his approval. James chapter 1, back to that passage in verse 25. Live by the word. Become a doer of the word and not just a hearer. That's what he says in that passage. And at the end of verse 25 it says, And you will be blessed by God. Do you trust him in that? Because if you do, you'll start living by the word more. So the original question is, do you trust God? I mean, do you really trust God? Because if the answer is still yes, how do you know? How does it show? How does it tell? And the truth is, it will show in those comparatively smaller, little things of daily life, like how pure we are and who we mix with. What kind of friends we have? What kind of words come out of mouth? What kind of attitudes we have towards things like sin, towards things like prayer, towards things like study, and so much more. But does it really matter? Does it really matter that much to God if we have all of these things put together? Let me illustrate it this way, just to close the lesson. On Long Island, just outside of New York City, a little two-year-old girl asked her mum to drive her. It's a true story. Asked her mum to drive her to get an ice cream cone. Mum told her that she wasn't feeling very well and had to take a nap. So mum goes to take a nap, but that little two-year-old girl had a very observant five-year-old brother. And when the mum was in bed, and don't try this at home, children, the brother said, I'll take you for an ice cream cone. So he goes into his mum's bag, and he gets the car keys out, and he gets his wee two-year-old sister, and he settles her into the car, 
and he starts the car and he backs the car out of the driveway onto the street and he pulls up to the end of the street and he gets to the stop sign and he's making his way through past the stop sign out onto the main road when the policeman blocks this car that doesn't look like it has anyone driving it which will kind of get your attention so he follows the car very quickly the car pulls over credit to the wee boy for realising that as well and imagine the policeman shocked when he sees this wee five-year-old boy driving the car and his wee two-year-old sister next to him. The story has a happy ending because they were safe. The policeman got them home. But that car was heading for a disaster. That car was heading for a crash with that wee boy driving it. Why? And if you could get one thing, get this. Because that wee boy wasn't meant to drive. That's not what he was meant to do. That's not what he was for. And with someone driving who never should be, you know that there's going to be a crash coming. And that's what our lives are like when the wrong person is driving it. This who is driving issue created two different types, two different types of people in Jesus' day in Luke chapter 7 verse 29 and 30 where it says all the people, even the tax collectors when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right. Do you get that? Jesus is teaching them. And all the people, even the tax gatherers, the ones that you wouldn't expect, they acknowledged, yep, God, your way is right. You're driving. But, it then says, the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purposes for themselves. Rejected. They, they wanted to drive. They wanted, they wanted to do it their way. They were my way kind of people. The people who ended up with Jesus, walking with Jesus, came to the point where they saw that God's way was right and that God should be driving their life. And the people who ended up without Jesus wanted to live lives for their lives for their own purposes. Listen, I, I'm sure all of us have learned that the hard way. I'm sure all of us have tried to drive at some point in our short or long lives, whatever it may be. And all of us have had a few crashes. All of us have had a few bumps. Thankfully none that have ended us because we're all still here. It does not take much for us to see that difficulties and complications and problems come because we tried to drive ourselves. Situations are harder because we tried to do it our way and we didn't listen to God's way and perhaps we didn't keep ourselves pure in any of those ways we spoke about or we didn't choose our friends more wisely or we didn't control our tongue or we weren't careful with how we lived and so we had a wreck. So do we trust them? I misled you a little bit in Proverbs chapter 3 verse 5. It doesn't say trust the Lord and do not lean on your own understanding. It says trust the Lord with all your heart. Is what it says. With all your heart. And if we let him lead our lives with that kind of intensity and that kind of trust, he promises in that verse things will go smoother. He'll straighten our paths if we just trust him, really trust him. God bless. Thank <laughs> you.